All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 24, for March 2021, for Women's Month. Christine Wetherill-Stevenson, Catherine Elizabeth McBride, Bernice McElhaney-Winterstein, and Ruth Dietz-Enny. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an Active Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Ballakinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next 60 minutes or so to learn about some interesting women interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery who have some amazing stories. Strong women are a highlight of many tours at both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Inventors, authors, performers, business leaders, philanthropists, all have made their mark on the American scene. Christine Wetherill Stevenson came from a prominent family and made her mark in Philadelphia, where she founded the Philadelphia Art Alliance, as well as in California, where she founded the Hollywood Bowl. Catherine Elizabeth McBride was a brilliant researcher in neuropsychology, but she's mostly remembered today for being president of Bryn Mawr College for 28 years and bringing it into recognition as one of the top institutions in the nation. Bernice McElhaney-Winterstein came from a family of collectors and at one time had one of the finest private collections in the United States while serving many roles for the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And Ruth Dietz-Enny joined the family business as a young woman, staying with it for more than 60 years and enjoying a late-life recognition as the company's spokesperson, the beloved Mama Dietz of Dietz & Watson. All four of these pioneer women are buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in Ballakinwood or Laurel Hill Cemetery on Ridge Avenue in Philadelphia. I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University. I will talk about all of them today in this March 2021 version of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Christine Wetherill Rice Stevenson, 1878 to 1922. Christine Wetherill came from a remarkable family, married into a remarkable family, helped found the Philadelphia Art Alliance, the Plays and Players Theater on Delancey Street, and the Hollywood Bowl in California. And she died before her 45th birthday. 
The Witherill family is well represented at Laurel Hill Cemetery. The main family plot in Section A, lots 54 through 57, conceals an underground crypt the size of about a five-car garage, and it contains the remains of more than 70 family members. But there was a split in the family during the late 19th century, and Christine's branch is buried in the chapel section, lot 5, right next door to Simon Gratz. Christine was born in 1878 in Philadelphia. She was an heiress to the S.P. Wetherill Paint Company, owned by her father. Both her Wikipedia page and several newspaper articles state that she was an heiress of the Pittsburgh Paint Company. I can find no verification for that statement anywhere. Her father, Samuel Price Wetherill, was the second son of Colonel Samuel and Sarah Maria Chatton Wetherill. He was born at Saugerties, New York on 17 May 1846. As a youth, he attended Nazareth Hall Military Academy in Pennsylvania and the Model School at Trenton, New Jersey. He started business life in the employ of his father and uncle at Wetherill and Brother, white lead manufacturers and wholesale druggists in Philadelphia. Wetherill and Brother was just one of the family businesses, which included Samuel Wetherill and Sons, Samuel P. Wetherill and Company, J.P. and William Wetherill, and several others. In 1868, for reasons I cannot find, Samuel severed his connection with his ancestral home and established himself as a commission merchant dealing in paints and drugs. He later organized as the S.P. Wetherill Company paint manufacturers, with a factory at 22nd Street and Allegheny Avenue and an office at 925 Chestnut Street. In 1880, Samuel, along with John Price Wetherill and Richard and August Hexer, purchased the Lehigh Zinc Works at South Bethlehem, which had been founded by his father. When it consolidated with the New Jersey Zinc Company, Samuel became the director. He was a clubman, the Rittenhouse, Racket, Philadelphia Gun. He was a member of the Union League, and he had a lot of money. Christine was a beauty with wealth and charm. Her father gave her and each of his children $100,000 to use as they desired. That's worth more than $2.5 million today. Christine decided to spend hers studying music in Paris. After a disastrous production where she lost her voice, she ran off to study painting on a farm on the outskirts of Paris. On 18 May 1897, Christine married John V. Rice Jr. at the First Unitarian Church on Chestnut Street. She was 19 years old. Within a few weeks, Christine realized her mistake. Rice, a talented inventor, a close friend of Thomas Edison, was an abusive and violent alcoholic. When Christine would tell him that dinner was ready, he would curse her violently and have the servants take it away until he was ready. Sometimes he would brandish a pistol when drunk. He chased her out of the house and made her sleep in a hammock on the porch. He would come to bed with a quart of whiskey, which would be empty by morning. And he would pour water or whiskey on Christine when she was trying to sleep. 
She managed to get out of the marriage with a divorce in 1902. Surprisingly, Rice went on to live a long, successful life. Among his inventions were the pneumatic drill, a triple-cylinder gas and steam engine, and other devices credited with bringing American industry to a state of efficiency and power, and he made a fortune. He was 90 when he died in 1962. He never remarried. Christine put her energies into becoming a social leader and a patron of the arts and was prominent in the civic life of Philadelphia. In 1908, at age 30, she married again, this time William York Stevenson, son of Cornelius Stevenson and the brilliant Sarah York Stevenson, famed archaeologist and Egyptologist who was the first woman to be awarded an honorary degree by the University of Pennsylvania. I will talk more about her in a future episode. Shortly after her marriage to William, Christine went to India alone to study Buddhism. When she returned, she became a theosophist, a religion established in the United States during the late 19th century by the Russian immigrant Helena Blavatsky. Theosophy's teachings came predominantly from Blavatsky's writings, older European philosophies such as Neoplatonism, and Asian religions such as Hinduism and Buddhism. It was very popular among spiritualists and mediums. In 1911, Christine joined with Mrs. Eli Kirk Price and Mrs. Otis Skinner to form the Plays and Players Amateur Dramatic Group, composed mostly of Rittenhouse Square and neighborhood residents. The following year, in the 1700 block of Delancey Street, they opened a little 324-seat jewel box of a theater called Plays and Players, and which is still quite active. I generally go there at least a half a dozen times a year. Now, when you visit, make the climb on a steep, narrow stairwell to the bar on the third floor for a drink before heading home. It is larger than a telephone booth, but not much. Also in 1911, Christine went to Hollywood. The town of Hollywood had been incorporated in 1903 and was consolidated with Los Angeles in 1910. By 1912, major motion picture companies, which had previously been centered in New Jersey near Thomas Edison, set up in and near Los Angeles. The first Hollywood movie in Old California was filmed in 1910. Christine was ahead of the curve. In 1911, she wrote and produced a play called Light of Asia, which was made into a film based on theosophist philosophy and was based on an 1879 book by Sir Edwin Arnold. It heavily inspired Mahatma Gandhi. In May 1916, an event occurred in rural Beechwood Canyon that forever changed the cultural landscape of Los Angeles. 5,000 actors, including Tyrone Power Sr., presented a production of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar as it had never been played before in the canyon's vast natural amphitheater. Traffic congestion up Beechwood was so bad that the play was delayed for hours. But once it started, it awed all who witnessed it. 40,000 people looked upon old Rome with its hills, its forum, its gladiatorial arena, its rulers and populace, which was reproduced on a magnificent scale. The setting was perfect. 
unhampered by the confining walls of a stage and with nothing to destroy the illusion. The success of this one-off benefit for the Actors Fund charity ignited a passion for outdoor entertainment in Los Angeles that has lasted for more than a hundred years. The tradition of public theatrics in California stretches back to the mission days when passion plays and pageants depicting the life of Christ were performed in outdoor venues. Easter sunrise services were also popular outdoor events, usually held in scenic natural canyons or atop accessible mountains. In early 1900s America, many artistically inclined progressive elites supported the pageantry movement, which sought to bring affordable history, dance, and music to the public in an effort to foster civic pride, teach moral lessons, and elevate public discourse. A rustic outdoor setting was considered ideal for those lofty goals. For cultural boosters, California, with its open blue skies, verdure-covered canyons, and ample cheap acreage, was indeed the promised land. As early as 1912, Griffith J. Griffith, founder of Griffith Park, had championed the construction of a Greek-style amphitheater in his park. In 1913, plans were announced for a model amphitheater to be built at the foot of Mount Hollywood. Griffith's project stalled, thanks in part to the park board's reluctance to take any more money from Griffith, who was convicted of shooting his wife in the face in a fit of madness worthy of a Greek tragedy. He served two years in prison. But the phenomenal 1916 success of Julius Caesar inspired Christine Wetherill Stevenson to pick up where Griffith left off. She claimed to have searched for years for the perfect venue to stage outdoor religious dramas of an inspirational nature, and she found it in the gentle foothills. In 1918, she produced 35 performances of her play, Light of Asia, in a rustic 1,500-seat temporary wooden amphitheater at the head of Vista Del Mar Street. The nightly overflow audiences were delighted with what they saw. After the play's enormous success, Stevenson sought to build a permanent amphitheater to produce her own huge spectacles. Together with other Hollywood leaders, she founded the Theater Arts Alliance to further these aims. After she was elected president of the organization, Stevenson sent actor H. Ellis Reed to search Hollywood for the perfect spot for her grand project. Real estate developer C.E. Toberman, an Alliance member who had dreamed of a theatrical complex in Hollywood since 1914, secured options to 60 acres of land popularly known as Daisy Dell. Using donated funds and substantial loans from Stevenson, the Alliance purchased the property. This would soon become the Hollywood Bowl. But conflicts arose between Stevenson and other Lions members about the topics to be presented. Christine saw the bowl as a place to present plays about various religious philosophies. She had already written her second work, The Pilgrimage Play, about Christianity, and was thinking about a third play based on the life of Confucius. Seeing no solution, she left the organization and built the 1,000-seat Pilgrimage Play Amphitheater, now the John Anson Ford Amphitheater, across the street 
from the Hollywood Bowl site. In June 1920, Stevenson's adaptation of the story of the life of Christ, the pilgrimage play opened its first summer season to enthusiastic audiences. To this day, summer finds tens of thousands of Angelinos flocking to the Hollywood Bowl and the John Anson Ford Amphitheater for music and theatrics under the stars. Christine was living a bi-coastal life, six months in California, six months in Philadelphia. After Europe's Great War started in 1914, she helped establish the Philadelphia Art Alliance at the Wetherill Mansion on 18th Street near Rittenhouse Square. She initially expected the Art Alliance to emphasize theater, but the organization soon turned its focus to visual arts. In 1917, Samuel Wetherill bought two houses in the 1800 block of Walnut Street and then sold them to the Art Alliance at a steep discount. Three years later, the Art Alliance acquired a third adjoining property and all three houses on Walnut were reconfigured into 19 artist studios and nine apartments. In 1920, the Art Alliance organized a sculpture exhibit in its rear garden and on Rittenhouse Square, which is repeated biannually until 1942. Paul Cret supervised the arrangements. In July of 1921, Christine's father-in-law, Cornelius Stevenson, age 80, was struck by a taxi while crossing Broad Street at Chancellor. He was knocked unconscious and suffered a fractured femur. In November, her mother-in-law, Sarah York Stevenson, died at age 74. In April of 1922, her husband, William York Stevenson, died at age 45. I cannot find his cause of death. And in November, her father-in-law died, never having recovered from his traffic accident. And on 20 November 1922, Christine Wetherill Rice Stevenson died in Philadelphia. She was 44 years old, and many thought that it was from a combination of grief and exhaustion. But her death certificate states the cause was, quote, pernicious anemia due to hemorrhages, illegible, change of life, fibroid illegible of uterus. In other words, perimenopausal bleeding due to fibroids. Nowadays, the term pernicious anemia applies to a vitamin B12 deficiency. This was only two years after Dr. George Whipple had described how raw liver was an effective treatment both for blood loss anemia and pernicious anemia, a study which would earn him the 1934 Nobel Prize in medicine. Christine was buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery in the chapel section across the road from Revolutionary War hero Hugh Mercer and next door to Philadelphia Board of Education member Simon Gratz, who died three years later. When her father Samuel died four years later, the Art Alliance bought his mansion on 18th Street in accordance with the terms of the will. Christine's mother and brother, Samuel Jr., moved into the high-rise at 1830 Rittenhouse Square. And the Art Alliance remained a family affair, with Samuel P. Wetherill Jr. serving as its president from 1926 to 1936. In 1923, a 40-foot lighted cross was placed above what is now the Hollywood Freeway as a memorial to the woman responsible for founding the Hollywood Bowl. 
1,800 incandescent bulbs outlined the $200 wooden cross and were turned on during evening performances and for Easter sunrise services in the bowl. Despite vandalism, windstorms, fires, earthquakes, and an attack by Nazis during World War II, a lighted cross still stands in the Hollywood Hills 98 years later as a tribute to Christine Wetherill Stevenson, buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Catherine Elizabeth McBride, 1904-1976. Even if she had never ascended to being one of the top educators in America, Catherine McBride would still be remembered today for the work she did as a graduate and postgraduate student at Bryn Mawr College. The 1935 book, Aphasia, a clinical and psychological study co-authored with Theodore Weisenberg, MD, and based on her graduate thesis, is still considered a seminal work in the field of neuropsychology and aphasia. Catherine Elizabeth McBride was born in the Germantown section of Philadelphia to Mr. and Mrs. Thomas McBride in 1904. She was educated at the Stevens School and at the Germantown Friends School. The Stevens School had been founded in 1868 by Miss Mary E. Stevens. It was well regarded as a college preparatory school for girls. It was located on West Shelton Avenue in the Germantown section of Philadelphia until 1953 when it moved to Chestnut Hill. The Stevens School closed in 1982. Film actress and East Falls resident Grace Kelly, Princess of Monaco, graduated from the Stevens School in 1947. Bryn Mawr College was established in 1885 as a Quaker school with very high standards for admission. M. Carey Thomas took charge of Bryn Mawr as its second president in 1894, and she ran it with an iron fist until 1922. President Thomas instituted special entrance examinations, which she made tougher than Harvard's. She made every matriculant show that she had mastered four years of Latin. She put her girls through an ordeal by fire of oral tests in French and German, and she decreed that every girl must read at least two hours every night before going to bed. But like some people who were part of the progressive movement, Thomas embraced and contributed to the eugenics movement. And her vision for Bryn Mawr and for women excluded African Americans and reflected ethnic and anti-Semitic bias. The school is still grappling with her legacy. When she died, her ashes were scattered at the college cloisters. When Catherine McBride attended Bryn Mawr, it was under its third president, Marion Edward Parks. Catherine graduated cum laude in 1925 and followed with a master's degree in 1927 and a Ph.D. in 1932. Her dissertation was on, quote, a psychological study of aphasia, end quote. The term aphasia is frequently misunderstood, even by some medical professionals. Aphasia is an inability to comprehend or formulate language because of damage to a specific brain region. It is not a catch-all term for speech difficulty. Aphasia has nothing to do with the mechanics of speaking. 
For instance, people who live with apraxia have difficulty putting words together in the correct order or reaching for the correct word while speaking. And dysarthria occurs when a patient's muscles do not coordinate together to produce speech. Aphasia was difficult to study. Obviously, you couldn't do a controlled trial by assigning one group to receive some sort of brain injury and another group to be the control. And in the days before functional CAT scan and PET scan, studies had to be done backwards. People would be observed with certain deficits in language and communications, and then a post-mortem exam would reveal where the lesion was. And not everyone with an aphasia underwent autopsy. So discoveries were slow in coming. In 1861, French neurologist Paul Brokaw determined from autopsy studies that damage to a certain part of the brain was what had caused a defect in the process of speaking. You might be able to comprehend spoken language and make some interesting noises, but you could not talk. And you also might get some fascinating results when you tried to write. We now call this Brokaw's area. A few years later, another Frenchman, Jean-Martin Charcot, and his colleagues identified a reading area. If this area were damaged, you could speak, you could understand speech, you could play handball, you could ride a motorcycle, but words on a page would look like nonsense. Now, interestingly, you might be able to write if you didn't have to revisualize the words you had just written. In 1874, German neuropathologist Karl Wernicke identified an area of the brain for comprehension of words. Damage here causes receptive aphasia, which means that even though you hear words correctly, they have no meaning to you. Your speech sounds relatively normal, but the meaning is somewhat scrambled. It's hard to describe until you've actually heard somebody with a receptive aphasia. And in 1881, British physician William Exner identified a portion of the brain that controlled writing. Damage here means you could still do complex drawings, complex mathematics. You could recite Shakespeare on stage. You could complete giant jigsaw puzzles. But you couldn't write, not even by drawing simple block letters. And I don't even want to go into various subcategories, such as paraphrasia, agrammatism, dysprosody, face blindness, finger agnosia, foreign accent syndrome, and so many others. This is why physicians take a multi-year residency in neurology and a fellowship in stroke medicine. I was an emergency physician. It was my job to say, this person is having a stroke, and then I handed it off. (laughs) Catherine McBride and Theodore Weisenberg took five years to examine 234 patients, of whom 60 lived with aphasia in several Philadelphia hospitals. The study was monumental because it was the first aphasia study to use normal controls to compare patients with and without aphasia and to use standardized testing methods. The result was a book of more than 600 pages with 20 chapters. You can find it in PDF format online. I have to admit, I enjoyed reading the appendices as much as anything. It explained the various tests that were given to the patients. Many are not so far from the many mental status exams that I would use in the emergency department. Now, Catherine stayed at Bryn Mawr after graduation. 
She started as a lecturer in the Department of Psychology and worked her way up to assistant professor and associate professor. She was also the director of educational service, which was a special educational clinic which Bryn Mawr provided for the use of public and private schools. In 1938-39, she served as assistant dean. But in 1939, she was coaxed away from Bryn Mawr to spend two years as dean at Radcliffe College. In 1941, the president of the board of directors at Bryn Mawr College announced the retirement of Miss Park after 20 years and named the 37-year-old Catherine McBride as her successor. The announcement was published in the college newspaper on 4 December 1941 three days before the United States was drawn into World War II. Her term would begin in July 1942. The student body and alumni were ecstatic about her return. One of her former students said, she has the gift of reaching you and though goodness knows she's a scholar, she comes down to your level. Even little children would never be afraid of her. A faculty member said, I don't see how they could have done better. She's a scholar, a human being, an executive, and a teacher all at the same time. Catherine McBride took over a college where courses in first aid and air raid precautions were part of the curriculum. She noted, when the war is over, educated, disciplined, civilized women will be needed to help in the reconstruction of the world, abroad and at home. She made Bryn Mawr a leading university with a stellar reputation, and not just among women's schools. During her 28-year tenure, the college expanded from 518 to 768 undergraduates, but the number of graduate students rose from 120 to 600 a five-fold increase in graduate students. She led the introduction of new programs in numerous fields, such as the history of science, biochemistry, music, Russian. She served as the chair of the American Council on Education in 1955-56, chair of the College Entrance Examination Board from 1949 to 1952, and three terms as chair of the Board of the Education Testing Service. She was also a member of the National Science Foundation, a trustee of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, and a member of the State Board of Education. In 1952, she became the first woman trustee of the University of Pennsylvania. Although Bryn Mawr was not technically a Quaker school, she was a fierce advocate for the college's Quaker traditions of free speech, and she frequently spoke out against national policies that she felt clashed with this belief. In 1959, at the tail end of the McCarthy era, she withdrew Bryn Mawr from the federal student loan program because it required recipients to sign a loyalty oath. She was soon joined by other Quaker-affiliated colleges, such as Haverford. They made a statement saying this requirement was tantamount to signing away one's right to freedom of thought as well as endorsing a government action which made the individual's opportunity for education contingent on personal beliefs. It also discriminated against students who had to apply for financial assistance, since students who did not apply for aid were not required to take a loyalty oath. 
Senator John F. Kennedy, Democrat of Massachusetts and presidential aspirant, also came out against this law. Eventually, it was repealed. And later, during the Vietnam War, McBride turned down government scholarship programs that required universities to report student protesters. In 1969, McBride withstood pressure from the state legislature and several congressmen when she refused to withdraw the appointment of Marxist Herbert Aptheker to teach black history. Aptheker taught at Bryn Mawr for four years. As an aside, as I was reading about this, I was reminded of a story about Robert Maynard Hutchins, a fierce believer in free speech who had fought similar battles more than two decades earlier at the University of Chicago. Once an acquaintance asked, so Robert, are you still teaching communism at the university? Hutchins responded, yes, and cancer at the medical school. Both McBride and Hutchins felt that communism could be taught because it would not withstand the scrutiny of public analysis and debate. A constant theme from people who knew her and worked with her was her humanity. Despite her lofty academic credentials, she was always known as Miss McBride. She not only knew the name of every instructor and student, but was seen frequently in conversation with every gardener, housekeeper, guard on the campus, and she knew their names also. When Catherine McBride celebrated her 25th anniversary as president in 1967, poet Marianne Moore, a 1909 graduate of Bryn Mawr, wrote this tribute. O fortunate Bryn Mawr, with her creatively unarrogant president, unique in her exceptional unpresidential constant, a liking for people as they are. Catherine A. McBride retired from her presidency in 1970 and was succeeded by Harris Wofford, another intellectual progressive. She had received 23 honorary degrees. She died of heart disease at Bryn Mawr Hospital on 3 June 1976 after being taken from her home at 704 Penstone Road, just a short distance from her college campus. She was survived by two nieces. The funeral service was at the chapel of West Laurel Hill Cemetery, where she was laid to rest in the Hanover section, lot 626, not far from the Belmont Avenue entrance. And since 1986, the Catherine E. McBride Scholars at Bryn Mawr are a group of women 24 and older who are in the process of beginning or completing their college education. McBride scholars participate in the same classes and programs as students of traditional college age. They are 100% martyrs. That's M-A-W-R-T-E-R. That's what Bryn Mawr graduates call themselves. And they have graduated more than 200 women over the past 35 years. Catherine McBride's name and influence live on long after her death. In 1969, the New York Times ran an extensive interview with art connoisseur Bernice Marilla McElhenney Winterstein, whom everyone called Bonnie. In giving a tour of her Villanova estate, Stoke Pogus, just off Spring Mill Road, she admitted that the large drawing room was her favorite because, quote, most of the Picassos are in this room, 
end quote. Of course, in 1969, the 87-year-old Picasso was still drawing and painting. His output would approach 45,000 works of art by his death in 1973. But that phrase, most of the Picassos, there were 19 of them in the house, still causes a surprise. The walls were also studded with pictures signed Matisse, Renoir, Degas, Villard, Winslow Homer, and Andrew Wyeth, plus a recently acquired sculptor by her good friend Louise Nevelson. The Rambling House had many rooms in which to exhibit her collection. The cornerstone is dated 1780, the middle part was built in 1830, and an additional wing was added about 1925. Bonnie Marilla McElhenney was raised in the arts. She had grown up at the family estate Park Gate. It was at Lincoln Drive and Johnson Street in Germantown, where the Lingelbach Elementary School now stands. Every day on her way to the Agnes Irwin School, then located in Wynwood, she would ride past the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion at Tulpahocken and Green Streets and gradually fell in love with it. Her father, John D. McElhaney, was one of the city's most distinguished art collectors and president of the Philadelphia Museum of Art from 1920 until his death in 1925. He had been educated at Central High School and became an executive in several East Coast gas companies in addition to manufacturing gas meters. The company was located at 17th and Clearfield. One of his passions was oriental carpets, and Bonnie recalls that, quote, I used to spend Saturday after Saturday with my father and his friends counting the knots in Isfahan rugs, end quote. At the time of his death, Bonnie was 22, and a recent honors graduate of Smith College with a degree in history, where she had been Phi Beta Kappa. She had also acquired a Marie Lorenzen and a Fujita painting, before she graduated. She started volunteering at the Philadelphia Museum of Arts in 1927. In 1929, when she was 26 years old, Bonnie married John Winterstein of Ardmore at the Summit Presbyterian Church in Germantown. She spent the next several years raising her four sons and champion dogs. You can find many articles about her competing in dog shows through those years. On 30 October 1952, John Winterstein, age 55, graduate of St. Paul's in Concord in 1915, Princeton in 1919, and Harvard Law School in 1922, officer in naval aviation during the First World War, officer of the Volunteer Reserve of the Coast Guard in the Second World War, big game hunter, photographer, member of the law firm McCoy, Evans, and Lewis, and president of the Germantown Hospital, was found shot to death in the bedroom of his home at 8440 St. Martin's Lane in Chestnut Hill, where the Wittersteins had lived since 1935. There was a single 22 caliber bullet wound to his right temple. Bonnie found his body. Funeral services were conducted at the First Unitarian Church, 22nd and Chestnut, where his maternal grandfather, Joseph May, had succeeded William Henry Furness as pastor in 1876. His death certificate says, suicide, temporarily deranged. 
Bonnie was now a 49-year-old widow with four sons. She had become a member of the museum's Board of Governors in 1941. After John's death, she was named to the Board of Trustees in 1954. She served as chairman of the board from 1959 to 1964 and is the first female president of the Philadelphia Museum of Arts from 1964 to 1969. Other firsts, Bernice McElhenney Witterstein was the first woman to serve on the advisory council of Princeton University's Museum of Art, the first to serve as chairman of the visitors committee for Smith College's Art Museum, and the first appointed to the visiting committee of the Department of Design and Visual Arts at Harvard University. She was also the first woman elected an honorary fellow of the Philadelphia College of Physicians. The 1969 New York Times article mentions that she was surrounded by one of the country's best private art collections. A collection that was better belonged to her younger brother, Henry Plumer McElhaney, whose Rittenhouse Square apartment contained what many felt was the finest private art collection in the United States at that time. I will talk about him in a future podcast. And Bonnie's collection kept growing. She added works by Americans Mark Rothko, Georgia O'Keeffe, Frank Stella, and especially Andy Warhol. In 1978, she became the subject of a series of Warhol photographs, which are now kept at the International Center for Photography in New York City. In 1973, she was appointed to the Board of Trustees for the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. That is also the year she turned 70 and started selling off her collection. A Renoir and a Rualt were the first to go, followed by 17 Picassos, which went for $2.6 million. When questioned by a reporter, she said that she would have given them to the Philadelphia Museum of Art if the museum's former director, Evan Turner, had treated her a bit nicer. Quote, I'm glad I didn't give them. I gave the money to my grandchildren and they straightened their teeth. End quote. When the Germantown Historical Society organized its drive to save the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion, they knew right where to go. Bonnie Winterstein underwrote restoration of its porch, bay window, and parlor. As a result, the house gave her rocking chair rights on the porch for a lifetime. Among her other awards, honorary doctorates from Hahnemann Medical College, Ursinus College, Villanova University, Wilson College, and the Moore College of Arts. In 1980, she quietly made a substantial donation to the Brandywine River Museum in honor of Andy Warhol. And in June 1983, Paffa threw a massive 80th birthday party for her, a bouquet for Bonnie. Her birthday gift was a large wood sculpture by Louise Nevelson, three years her senior. It is entitled Cascades Perpendiculars. Despite being a grand dame of Philadelphia society, she retained a wonderful sense of humor. Once invited to a dawn breakfast at the Philadelphia Zoo, she took pen in hand and replied, I cannot see the Springbok dance, nor can I watch the ostrich prance so early in the morning. A baby camel leaves me cold. I don't care if it's a second old so early in the morning. Bunny Winterstein died on 24 April 1986. She was 82 years old. 
Her brother Henry died less than a month later. The art museum received eight works from her collection, including the two Picassos, a Matisse, the magnificent 1937 Lady in Blue, a Georgia O'Keeffe, and a Winslow Homer. The Academy received an Andrew Wyeth watercolor and a suite of six screen prints by Frank Stella. Bonnie was interred in the McElhaney family plot in the Woodlawn section of West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Sometime in the early 2000s, Philadelphia meat merchant Dietzen Watson decided to advertise their wares using a woman who would apparently be vested in the product, and she would be their spokesperson. They planned to hire an older, white-haired actress to play the role, maybe a Betty White type. The matriarch of the company, Ruth Dietz Enney, daughter of the company's founder, Gottlieb Dietz, said, Why do you want to spend all that money? She decided to step into the role herself, and she was definitely vested in the product. In 1922, Gottlieb Dietz fled the crumbling economy of post-war Germany with an armful of recipes for sausages and meats, and he planted his family roots in Philadelphia. Gottlieb had a daughter named Eleonore while in Germany in 1921. Everyone called her Lore. According to her 1999 obituary, she came to Philadelphia in 1939 and worked for the company for the next 60 years. Gottlieb married Anna Waldorfer in Philadelphia in 1923, and they had a daughter, Ruth, born in 1925. Gottlieb perfected his skills as a sausage maker and in 1939 purchased the Watson Meat Company from Walter Watson. His original facility was located next to the Benjamin Franklin Bridge on the Delaware River in Old City, and he called his company Dietz and Watson. The Dietz girls were raised frugally. Ruth remembers being sent by her mother to the movies to claim giveaway china and glassware. But, she said, we were not allowed to stay for the show. We had homework to do. Each year at Christmas time, Ruth and Lore pulled down the same doll from its shelf so it could be gifted with a new outfit or taken for a 50-cent hair wash. And each year, at the end of the holiday season, they carefully packed the doll away, stowed until the following winter. When Ruth told this story many decades later, she smiled and said, I still have it. In the summer of 1942, both girls started working for their father. Ruth was about to embark on an education at the University of Pennsylvania, where she received her bachelor's degree from the Department of Education in the class of 1945, and then her master's degree in 1946. And she did start teaching, but her father coaxed her away to join him in the meat business. He said, I pay better. So Ruth and Lore became immersed in the business of Dietz and Watson, learning everything they could. Along the way, Ruth met Louis Enney, who was born in Philadelphia and had graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering from Villanova in 1944 and served in the Navy at the end of World War II. He then worked as an engineer for the Lester Piano Company for 11 years. Ruth and Lewis married in 1952, and Lewis settled down at Dietz and Watson in the mid-1950s. 
When Gottlieb Dietz died in 1964, Ruth and Lewis took over. Her children and grandchildren say from that day, she reviewed every check that went out and payment that came in. When Lewis died at Hahnemann Hospital in 1996, he had been running the company for 20 years as president and chief operating officer. His widow Ruth and three of the Ennie children, Lewis Ennie, CEO, Chris Ennie, COO, and Cynthia Ennie Yingling, CFO, were now in charge. Dietz and Watson expanded to produce a wide variety of deli meats, cheeses, franks, and sausages. More than 300 items from its Philadelphia headquarters alone. The company is also the last Philadelphia manufacturer of Scrapple. And it produces chicken and turkey items from a plant in Baltimore, and it has cheese-making facility in Corfu, New York. They were among the first lunch meat companies to offer low-sodium products in the 1980s, long before it became a trend. Now, when the Mama Dietz campaign started, Ruth Dietz Ennie became the perfect spokesperson, and other companies immediately wanted to know which agency was handling their publicity and where they found that perfect actress. They were taken aback when they found out that Mama Dietz really was Mama Dietz. She was perfect for a reason. She had been living and breathing Dietz and Watson her entire life. She appeared on television commercials, newspaper ads, and billboards, and she became a national phenomenon. And into her 90s, she continued to go to the office every day, except for the days she was on the road promoting the company. Ruth Dietz Enney died in February 2019 at age 94. She had barely slowed down over the prior 75 years. She was interred in the Dietz Enney Mausoleum at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Franconia Section, Lot 126. Now, I don't want to turn this into a Dietz and Watson commercial, but the company's thinking has been unchanged for decades. Quote, we have a philosophy that if we're making a roast beef or a chicken or turkey breast, then it's going to be the best that it can possibly be. It will be the best tasting, the freshest, highest quality, and made with the best ingredients that you can find anywhere in the university. Nothing is made to price. We don't ever make a product based on a certain pricing formula. End quote. I will confess I had never tried their products before. But after researching this podcast, I purchased a package of their Virginia smoked ham. Believe me, I will be back for more when this package runs out. Next time in the April 2021 edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, it's some Worcester men you may not know. Anyone familiar with Philadelphia history knows about Caspar Worcester, who founded the Worcester Institute and whose ashes are displayed there in an urn, and author Owen Worcester, who wrote the first Western novel of Virginian and is buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. But this was a large and very productive family. There are 40 Wisters and 30 Wistars buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, along with three Wisters at West Laurel Hill. William Roch Wister was a lawyer, soldier, and founder of the Germantown Cricket Club. John Wister, founder and manager of Ironworks and Banks and Civil War soldier. 
Langhorne Wister was a colonel with the Bucktail Regiment during the Civil War. Rodman Wister was a drummer boy at the Battle of Gettysburg. And John Caspar Wister was considered the Dean of Horticulturalists in the United States. I will talk about all five of these Philadelphia men in the April episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October and from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open for historic tours again, but with limited participants who are willing to follow CDC recommendations for masks. And we still have frequent pay-what-you-wish virtual tours. Find out more at the laurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Here's more to satisfy your curiosity, laurelhillcemetery.blog, where you can read about even more interesting people. And if you follow us on Instagram, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours that I have done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Cemetery Hotspots and Storied Plots Virtual Tour Number 1 gives you an overview. And All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories is a video podcast number one that I did on illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. And the podcast I did on ornithologists and entomologists is also now available as a video podcast on YouTube. Now, once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year in addition to a discount at the gift shop. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. I also invite you to hear the radio show that I do for WPPM-FM in Philadelphia every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. East Coast time. You can stream it from phillycam.org slash listen or from my website joelex.xyz. Stick around if you want to hear the references that I use for this podcast. And until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well.
There's an excellent book about the Wetherill family businesses called From Merchants to Color Men, Five Generations of Samuel Wetherill's White Lead Business. It's written by Miriam Hussey, University of Pennsylvania Press, Philadelphia, 1956. Information on Christine Wetherill Stevenson came mostly from newspaper articles. The story of her abusive marriage to John Rice was a surprise. It was from an article in the Lebanon Argus of Lebanon, Kansas, dated 22 August 1902, titled Brutalized by Drink. Also information from her 1922 obituaries from both Philadelphia and Los Angeles. And then there's another article I recommend called Founding the Hollywood Bowl by Catherine Parsons Smith. American Music, Summer 1993, Volume 11, Number 2, pages 206 to 242. For Catherine McBride, you can find aphasia, a clinical and psychological study from 1935, online in PDF format if you search for it. The announcement of her presidency comes from the December 3rd, 1941 edition of The College News. You can also read The Birth of the Bryn Mawr College Black Studies Program and the Herbert Aptheker Appointment by Emma Ruth Burns in Swarthmore Undergraduate History Journal, Volume 1, Issue 1, Article 5, dated 2020. The Bernice Winterstein material came mostly from newspaper articles, especially that New York Times article I mentioned that's dated 6 July 1961. And information on Ruth Dietz Any came from newspaper articles, the Dietz and Watson website, and an article from the Alumni Bulletin of the University of Pennsylvania about members of the class of 1945. I'm Joe Lex. See you next time. Stay safe. Stay well.